My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Hello, my friends and listeners. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, coming to you for another episode of Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. I tell you what, it is awesome to be back here in the studio again, just uh, not doing a live performance. Although if you didn't go back and listen to that live performance episode, my God, did we have fun with that. And I hope to do a lot more in the future because there's a lot of people who enjoy that format and sitting down and just hearing a crazy story. And oh my God. What a fun time. But back here in the studio today, I have quite a special guest on the program today. I've been following this person on TikTok for quite a while. Uh, he's got a huge following, and I would imagine uh, it's a lot of the content that he puts out. Uh, some of my favorite stuff that this person does is dramatic readings of very commonplace or poorly worded or poorly spelled signs up for public viewing. Uh, he's got a lot of other stuff, though, but that's stuff that I really enjoy. Uh, but this is my new friend, Jason Roy Gaston. Hello, Jason. Hello. Oh, Jason, good to have you on the show. Um, I've been such a fan of yours for a while, and I actually sent you a picture, and I don't know if you've been able to use it yet. You've had so many, that, and you said, I don't know, I just get thousands of these on the daily. But mine was a great sign that we've had at my workplace forever. And it just has a blue arrow pointing to the left. And it says, for assistance, please go. <laughs> I have, I remember that I, I haven't had a chance to get to it yet. But I do remember that. <laughs> it's just, it's just, the, it's such a workplace thing. It's customer oh service done correctly. 100%. If you need help, just piss off. Yes, go away. <laughs> go away. Please don't please don't hesitate to go elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> we couldn't be bothered less by the fact that you are here when we are not. So, so Jason, um another thing that you do on on your page is you are a fan of like several different fictional universes. I mean, yes, uh, I have no life. Yes. No, that well, is true. <laughs> As many of us don't. I mean, I, I often have said on this program and elsewhere, we have for a long time been a culture of nerds. Yes. You know, everybody is really into whatever they're into and they are into it deeply. You know, this is 
one of the great things that COVID got to us is that it made us, you know, uh, Olympic binge watchers. Like we have that down to a science. Absolutely. I I binge watched so much during the pandemic. I binge watched all of Steven Universe and Adventure Time and I revisited so much stuff that I hadn't seen in years. And right. The the pandemic was just aside from all the bad things. It was great. It was great for that reason. It was it was great <laughs> for all the reasons that did not affect me personally. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think, wow, that sounds like just a perfect little idiom for how America responded to COVID. Yes, very pretty much. <laughs> yes. As long as it does not affect me personally, I think it was great. That was great. All right. Well. My friends and listeners, uh, if you're not following Jason already on TikTok, that's what I'm going to suggest you go to. But I brought Jason on this show because um, I got a great suggestion. And, and I have to give credit to, uh, I'm going to go ahead and name drop here, and and and, and she's going to be thrilled that I'm name drop. But uh, one of the fans of the show, her name is Chelsea Victoria Turner. Oh, Chelsea. Vi- Chelsea. I have no idea who that is. She gave us the topic today and she's listened to the show for quite a while, was an usher for our live episode on July 29th. And she turned me on to this story, even sacrificing a DVD to me as she's seen it so many times she could practically play it from beginning to end in her memory. I mean, Jason, these are the kind of fans that uh, we know. I mean, I got to bring it up. I love the videos of you responding to online hate of whatever is going on with whatever (laughs) show is popular right now. You know, I mean, I know you're uh, deeply enmeshed in the history of several cinematic universes and, and, you know, TV shows. And yes, we've established that I have no life. Yes. I I mean, both you and I were sitting here in video and looking at each other's (laughs) collections on shelves behind us on the walls. Yes. But yeah, so I got to say, Chelsea, thanks for this. We may uh, keep praising you depending on how we feel about it by the end. <laughs> and I asked you this, Jason, I wrote this to you yesterday, just to kind of get ready for this, because I knew you'd have a, a bomb answer to this. Yes, because you told me I have homework for you. And I just thought that is not part of our deal. <laughs> <laughs> no one said anything about homework. And being a teacher, I can see how you're now the shoe is on the other foot. So yes. Uh, <laughs> because teachers never bring work home. Oh, no, no, that never no. happens. Never. I mean, they have they have all their summers off. Of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, being a fan of several different universes, I'm going to ask you this, and I'm I'm so excited because you kind of gave me a hint at what your answer is going to be. What is a time in which the fandom of a franchise may have been problematic to the franchise? Go. You just want one example? <laughs> there are oh, so many. <laughs> okay, so yes, there are, there are multiple. Before you started recording, we we were talking about that new Predator movie, Prey. God, uh, it's so good. It is good. If you have not seen it, drop everything and go watch it. It is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you could talk about Star Wars. You could talk about the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is starting to get just inundated with toxic dude bros, but... One universe that is near and dear to my heart that is currently experiencing a renaissance of toxic fandom is Star Trek. Oh, my God. Okay, okay. So before we continue, is it Trekkie or Trekker? It is Trekkie. If you say Trekker, I will disconnect right now. (laughs) I'm just letting you know. Because I've had people be very adamant the other direction. Those people are wrong. I respect everyone's opinion, but they're wrong. 
<laughs> Love it. Okay, so Star Trek is having a uh, a new onset or a, a, a rebirth of hatred. What's going on? Well, it all started. There's there's a there are eras of Star Trek. There was the right. classic Trek era with the right. original and animated series, and then there was the Renaissance with um, the Next Generation, Next Deep Generation, Space Nine, yep. Voyager, and Enterprise. And then it was off the air for several years. They did the movies. And the movies are called the JJ movies or the uh, Kelvin universe. And now they're called the uh, the new series. And I'm talking about Discovery, Star Trek Picard, Star Trek Lower Decks, Star Trek Prodigy. And I feel like I'm, oh, I, I am forgetting one. Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Uh, okay, this new era okay. is called New Trek, N-U-T-R-E-K. And New Trek is, as Star Trek always has been, very progressive because we all know that Classic Trek featured the late, great, deeply missed Nichelle Nichols as Uhura. Oh, yes, yes. Whenever um, Next Generation came along, you know, it was big news. They had a woman doctor on board. Yeah. They had a black chief engineer. Deep Mm -hmm. Space Nine comes along. We have a black lead who is not only the captain of the space station, he's also a single father raising a son which was and in uh Cyric Lofton yep. and Avery Brooks's words huge huge <laughs> for the community mm-hmm. Voyager mm-hmm. comes along we have a woman captain right um yeah and you know there were other firsts that came along and of course Discovery wanted to honor this tradition so we have uh we have two openly gay characters who are married to each other oh Dr. wow Colbert yes Dr. Colbert and uh uh Stamets, I can't remember what his rank is. Uh, Paul mm-hmm. Stamets, he's he's like the one of the main scientists on board this ship. And then we have another character who's just amazing. Her name is Jet Reno, and she's played by the incomparable Tig. Uh, Tig, oh gosh, what is her name? She's a comedian. Tig. Oh, Tig, Tig Notaro. Tig Notaro, yes. Yeah. Um, who is she's very rarely on the show. They they have to basically like redo their whole schedule to get her on the show. But whenever right. they can, they, they put her on the show. And you think I'm kidding, but they're not. Like almost every single shot oh, of yeah, her no. is green screened. Yep. Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> whenever it's that a close sense. up, it's green screen, and whenever it's out, it's like that's a body double. But uh, yeah, she she's on, and uh, she's she's an openly gay character. Oh wow! And then you have a non-binary character who huh. uh, who is in a relationship with a trans character. Oh, okay. So they, they have got representation blowing out their ears right now. Right. And of course, you know, the, the lead is a black female. Uh-huh. One of the main characters for a while was an, uh, an Asian woman. Uh, we all know her and gosh, I'm having trouble remembering her. <laughs> I'm That's so okay. prepared. I'm such a huge fan of her too. But, um, that's okay. I can't wait to get hate mail. Please. Yes, I, I just yes, want please, yes. please notoriety is, uh, is Michelle nope. Yo. Michelle Michelle. Oh, Michelle Yo. Yo. God. Yes. She was on uh, the show for a while. Unfortunately, she left, but she's supposed to be getting her own spinoff. Woo. And uh anyway, there's there's just so much representation, and you just see this beautiful cast of all these wonderful, diverse characters. Oh, oh God. Okay. And the dude bros hate it. I see where you're they going. They hate it so oh, much. jeez. Yes. Uh, I know. Uh, okay. And I mean, going back to Prey here, uh, you know, you probably have all this hate right now. And I'm not paying attention to it because I'm just going, well. How then... does she know how to use the helmet? Hey, why would this girl? There's no way that Tomahawk would be strong enough. Shut up. What? 
Why? Just <laughs> she's not even a warrior. I don't understand. <laughs> Now, wait a minute. She does not have a penis. Therefore, I mean, yes. They they all forgot that Sarah Connor was a uh, was a waitress and she killed a Terminator. And, you know, Ellen Ripley was a space trucker who killed an alien. <laughs> I think uh-huh. that a Comanche uh-huh. warrior. Yes. Can kill a predator. Yes, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And oops, well, spoil the ending, but kind of. I not. think they saw that coming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pretty um, sure they saw that coming. <laughs> See, and, and that that is so funny to me because, you know, when you start talking about these universes that, you know, they have conventions and, and you know, people meet up, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure there are like, you know, weekly Zoom chats where people get together and discuss uh, certain things. When something is made to be inclusive and feel inclusive and everything, it's just still funny to me that there are people who are like, no, get out. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, it, it makes no sense to me either. I mean, it, it does not make you as, and I'm not saying you, I'm just speaking no, no, as no, a no. hypothetical person out there. It does mm-hmm. not make you as a white cis male obsolete. Yeah, It's no, just saying no. <laughs> we're letting everyone in now, whether you are black, mm-hmm. uh, Asian, uh, brown, gay, straight, trans, non-binary, everyone is welcome here. Right. And- to that point, uh, to all these dude bros who are uh, getting offended by this, I will remind you, dude bros. Get bent. Get that- bent. There's my, there you go. Let me help you. Get bent. Get all the way bent. Get bent. Keep getting bent. And just when you think you can't get bent anymore, bend as far as you can until you hear something snap. And then keep going. Keep going. Well, what I was going to say was I wanted to remind all of these dude bros uh, uh, just the inclusiveness that was Captain Kirk's bedchambers. I mean, he slept with Gross. everything, didn't he? <laughs> he did. He, he did. He really did. He, he went beyond black, brown, and white. He was going for the green. Intergalactic. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so that actually brings us to a very interesting point when probably where we're going to start here. So um, you ready to go? Oh, I have. I'm, I was born ready. Let's actually, do I it. Was, I was born scared and, 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 and covered in somebody else's blood. But what? I'm ready now. And that's all that matters. Yeah. Well, it was that joke I heard the other day. Somebody said something like, you know, uh, they keep saying that childbirth is one of the most painful experiences that somebody can go through. And I go, you know, maybe I was just too young to remember it, but I don't think it hurt that much. No, no. <laughs> as long as it does not affect me, as long as I'm it fine with it. <laughs> okay. So here we go. Today's episode. In 2008, Lionsgate Pictures released a film on 11 screens nationwide. Even though it bore the Lionsgate logo, Lionsgate primarily saw itself as a distributor as 90% of the total production and release of the film was the responsibility of the film's director, Darren Lynn Bousman. The film was Repo, the Genetic Opera. Hmm. Have you seen this movie? I have not. Oh, good. I have I have heard about it, but I have never seen it. And I have actually wanted to see it. I've just never had the opportunity. 
So I'm just going to go ahead and let you know uh, right off the bat here, Jason, that this is another world that you may have to get entrenched in and buy all of the action figures and the books that go along with it because, oh boy, it gets deep. I am always <laughs> ready to, to let another fandom consume me, body and soul. So for those of you out there who might recognize the title of the director of the film, I'll give you some background in both. I suppose it would be most appropriate to first speak of the director, Darren Lynn Bousman. Bousman, and I may be pronouncing his name wrong, and somebody can please correct me, but this is how I'm going to pronounce it for the rest of the episode. Bousman was a small player in Hollywood in the early 2000s, doing his best to get some attention paid to his script. In his mind, this script could be the next big major motion picture horror franchise, and the 90s, I think we can all agree, was an odd time for horror films. The genre had gotten fairly stale with the first of many franchise reboots and numerous sequels that made audiences wonder why Hollywood was bothering to put up any money at all for these duds. Yes, well, you know, Scream has was both a wonderful thing and has a lot to answer for. <laughs> the the self-aware horror movie was both a great thing and not a great thing and it really wasn't its fault it's just everybody decided to copy it and you know yeah yeah exactly it, it came it, the movie started coming off as just smarmy and self-important and yep yeah terrible then scream was great scream was great i love the first two i love the first oh two. yes well then another indie franchise came along and rewrote the game completely saw overnight the series launched as something of an intensely gory whodunit became a sensation and has launched a number of sequels and spinoff films. You a fan of Saw? I was a fan of the first handful of them. Yeah, I like the first two. The, the first one came out and I was just like, wow, that was really cool, really different. You could tell it was like guerrilla filmmaking. Danny Glover is amazing in anything he does. Oh, right. Yeah. He was and like in the, the middle then, two or three, yeah. Yeah, and then they they showed up with part two, and I was just like, I don't know where this is going. I watched them like, okay, yeah, that's really good too. Mm -hmm. Wow, yeah. okay, I like that. And then the third one came along and dip in quality, and then the rest of them were just kind of <laughs> like, why does this exist? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Because they're cheap and they make money. That's why they exist. That's it, yeah. They're easy to put together, and they're yes. easy to mass produce. So back to Bousman and his plucky little script. The script was called The Desperate, and Bousman did everything he could do to get it into the hands of the people who could make it a reality. Despite numerous attempts with major studios who just deemed the script way too bloody and gory for major motion picture release, Bousman was eventually picked up by people who had been in his shoes very recently. Filmmakers Lee Wanell and James Wan, who created the Saw series, and for those of you following the career of James Wan, he's now been picked up by major motion picture franchises The Conjuring, Annabelle, and Aquaman. And I loved seeing his influence in that like deep trench with the spooky, scary, spiny monsters and everything. And I was like, oh, that's a horror film director right there. He's just having fun. You do know that Annabelle shows up in the Aquaman movie, right? <gasps> I think I did know that. Like yes. she's on the, on the floor of, of. Yeah, she's on the ocean floor. Oh, at one my point. God. That's I remember, right. I remember seeing that in theaters going, was that Annabelle? <laughs> what? What? what was she doing here? Don't you belong in mediocre horror movies? <laughs> <laughs> Where you're doing absolutely nothing? I will say the last two Annabelle movies were pretty good. Okay. I'm okay. Sorry. All right. That's fine. So these two guys picked up Bousman's script 
And while they didn't greenlight his this project specifically, they found another use for him. They hired him to helm the sequel to Saw. So he directed Saw 2. And they liked his work so much that he went on to direct the next two sequels. So he's responsible for being behind the camera for 2, 3, and 4. So from begging people to like his script in 2004, fast forward to 2008, in which he had directed three small budget but big horror franchise releases for major motion picture studios. Quite a leap. Indeed. However, in 2008, Bousman had enough steam behind his brand to launch his own project, Repo the Genetic Opera. So for those of you who know the plot, uh, you can fast forward a little bit or you can, uh, you know, be like the fans you are and listen to what I'm going to say and write me later and tell how awful I, I summarized everything. But here we go. <laughs> the year is 2056. Early in the 2000s, across the world, a plague of internal organ failures decimated mankind, killing millions. Solutions soon became available in the form of massive organ donation. Surgeries became fashionable. But not only were there surgeries to save people's lives, but rather cosmetic surgery became all the rage. So because of humanity's demand for conventional beauty and using their money on that, when it came to require a new organ to survive, most people couldn't afford it. Enter the multinational corporation Geneco, G-E-N-E-C-O. I think I know where the repo is coming in. Uh-huh, yep. Uh-huh. Geneco is run by Patriarch Rotti Largo, R-O-T-T-I. It's like it's supposed to be Italian. And his three astonishingly decadent adult children. <laughs> Geneco would be happy to provide the financing to anyone to get the organs of their need and choice. But there's a catch. If a buyer can't keep up on their organ loan payments, Geneco would dispatch its mercenary, the Repo Man, who would either come receive the organ from the buyer or take it. And he was good at his job. Wasn't this a skit in the last Monty Python movie? <laughs> it might have been. No, I, I, no, I think it. in the meaning of life, they like repossess this guy's kidney because he can't afford his hospital payment. So they're like, oh my cutting God, him open yes. on, the, on the kitchen floor, on the kitchen table. And <laughs> all the no, no, they weren't repossessing it. He had, he, he said he was an organ donor. Yeah, and so and they, they were came, coming to get his organs. Coming to collect. Yeah. Oh my God, you, that's so oh, funny. You, that you we're know the that director out. probably saw that skit and was it, like, oh, hey. oh, you're going to love where this goes then. So, okay, everything I just said, that's just exposition to the story. Nice. <laughs> we haven't nice. even gotten to the plot. <laughs> so thrust into this world is a young girl named Shiloh. Shiloh lives with her father. She's about age 17. And her father is the reclusive Nathan Wallace. Shiloh has been sheltered away from the world by her father because upon birth, it was discovered that she has a rare blood disease. And rather than risk infection, Nathan opted to shutter her away from this terribly decadent world. Of course, the story opens with Shiloh sneaking away from her father's watch as she tries to find her mother's grave. Oh, and by the way, Gene Co. is so powerful that they have been able to convince the government to pass legislation that grave robbing is worthy of capital punishment, as it would eat into their profits. Where do you think they get the organs from? Ew. Mm-hmm. But there is also a dangerous and highly addictive pain-killing street drug that is harvested from the dead. So, what a cycle. 
You've got people going out and stealing from the dead when they're not supposed to, even though grave robbing is illegal, but it's fueling the drug trade. This movie sounds bananas and I love it. <laughs> like I said, I'm 10 minutes in right now. Okay. I need to see this now. Yes, you do. <laughs> anyway, Shiloh is actually abducted by the repo man who just happens to be in the graveyard as at the same time as Shiloh. He realizes she's in danger and scoops her up to take her home. What the audience soon realizes is that the repo man is actually Shiloh's father, but his actual work has been kept secret from Shiloh for her entire life. And again, I'm not exaggerating. This is only 10 minutes into the movie. This sounds like a soap <laughs> opera that you would see on Futurama. Oh, oh my God. You know, Calculon would be playing, you know, the, the guy <laughs> in the graveyard. You know. Are you my father? No! <laughs> I mean, yes, yes, I am your father. Uh-huh. So the rest of the story takes Shiloh out into the world to discover the awfulness that humanity has sunk to, the very reality that her father Nathan has tried, tried so hard to shield her from. We get to meet all of the Largo family, you know, the heads of Jinko, the absolutely and extremely villainous, who, they're just terrible in about every way i'm not sure if i've ever seen so many characters who have absolutely no redeeming qualities at all and i'm wondering is this an opera thing probably anyway turns out that the patriarch roddy largo head of Co., who is also very reluctant to name an heir to his company based on the idea that each of his children are utterly deplorable he is also somewhat entangled into the lives of shiloh and nathan you see, Roddy was somewhat romantically entwined with a woman who left Roddy for Nathan. Whoa. Yeah. It's like Grimes finally leaving Elon Musk for the greeter at Walmart. Forget soap opera. We're, we're right into Jerry Springer territory. Hey, yep. Now. Here we go. Now, Roddy's not having any of that because, you know, he's an American man with power. He manages to make Shiloh's mother very sick. And Nathan being a doctor, believed he was giving his pregnant wife medicine when, in fact, he gave her poison. Not only that, the poison is the thing that's responsible for Shiloh's lifelong illness. So faced with a horrible decision on his wife's deathbed and knowing that he could only really save one of them, Nathan surgically removed his daughter from the womb, saving her life, but at the same time allowing his wife to expire. And soon after, mainly driven by his grief, Nathan took up the role of the Repo Man for Gene Co. Just another level of vengeance for Roddy Largo. My goodness, this is <laughs> it's deep, complicated. <laughs> uh huh. The story gets even crazier from here. There's more. There's more. Oh my gosh. As a major show of generosity to the people for their continued patronage of Geneco, the Largo family hosts a series of air quotes genetic operas in the vein of like the Met Gala. Okay. So it's like all of the celebrities are there. Who cares about the show? We're coming to see the people on the carpet, right? And uh, not the least of these people is uh, Blind Mag, an opera diva above all opera divas. Okay, so I'm guessing her. I'm guessing her. Uh, her thing is she's blind. Well, she was blind, but, but now in, uh, she sees. sees because Roddy Largo got her cybernetic eyeball organ implants. Tell me, she shoots laser beams out of them. 
Uh, no, but she can Aww. like analyze people and, you know, like see through clothing and see through walls and stuff like that. It's, I, I guess that's okay too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I won't give away too much more of the rest of it. <laughs> you can't explaining <laughs> it for like 30 minutes straight. And I won't give away more. <laughs> no, because there is a lot more actually. It's a hundred minutes long. It's, you've been explaining it for a for hundred minutes yep, now. Yep, yeah. <laughs> So the other thing that I have to add to this whole thing is that Repo the Genetic Opera is exactly that. It's an opera. Virtually all lines of dialogue in the play are sung. There are 58 songs in the full score and 36 of them are fully sung. It is one playlist from beginning to end. And they had, they did not have the confidence to release this nationwide. I am it, so disappointed. 11 screens. How many screens do you think they put Mortal Kombat Annihilation in? Oh, God. I, I mean, oh. Come on. I think, I think your standard right now is somewhere between 2,500 to 4,000. Yeah. Is this- for major releases. Yeah. So not only is Repo the Genetic Opera fully musical throughout, the story and score are on such a grand scale that without the post-apocalyptic futuristic setting and much of the gratuitous gore, this could be a story that would not be too strange to hear at La Scala. If you get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of this movie and then come back and ask what's going on, just leave. Yes, you have to. Just don't come back. Just don't come back. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that might be why it had a better following when it went to DVD, because you could <laughs> stop for pee breaks. <laughs> That's why they need to bring back the intermission. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so now that we have a basic understanding of story, let me tell you the history of that show and why a movie musical is the focus of an episode on theater history. <laughs> okay, let's, let's put okay. a nice bow on this now, yeah. because I'm totally lost. Let me just put it this way. I say it later, but it, it it works on a cult following because it is like a gift to goth culture. Like, <laughs> I mean, think about it. I mean, anybody in, in opera, like, okay, so there's these outlandish costumes with lace and satin and silk and, uh, you know, the wealthy people all look like Italian crime bosses. And then the uh, people who are you know, the heroes are all, you know, they have to kill to survive and they hate doing it. And, you know, oh, life is pain and torture. And, and I, I mean, it was for goths. They're like, yes, please, more, more, more. Um, nom, nom, nom. <laughs> so Repo, the genetic opera, actually started in the late 90s when theater artists, I'm going to murder this name, Terrence Zdunich and Darren Smith met in an acting class in L.A. They hit it off right away and began to share ideas of how to present theater in their fashion. They founded the two-man theater troupe, The Gallery, and specialized in writing, producing, and performing 10-minute operas. That's awesome. Isn't that great? That is so know, <laughs> At first, I was like, that's silly. That's Actually, no, that's that's a great idea. That's a fantastic idea. I mean, idea. It's, it's opera for the MTV generation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of these operas was titled The Necromerchant's Debt, in which a grave robber in the world that Repo is set in becomes indebted to the Repo Man. So they just crunched all that into 10 minutes, huh? 10 minutes. Boom. Wow. The grave robber was played by Zdunich, and he played the same character in the movie almost a decade later. In any case, throughout the early 2000s, the duo managed to stage The Necromerchant's Debt at various venues around L.A., 
They knew they were onto something when their audiences were entranced by the world around the story of the grave robber. So after a show, people would be like, okay, so I need more about this world. This, this is fantastic. That's a fantastic story. And it sounds like there's other stories. Tell me more. And so therefore they began to craft a longer format production in 2002 they found their director for their full-length version, Darren Lynn Bousman, who did these Saw movies. And they were able to assemble a much larger cast and crew to workshop their full-length play at various cabarets and clubs around L.A. So, in 2004, they launched a second production in L.A. that ran in a singular location for the entire summer, building an audience. Repeat business. In 2005... Repo played off-Broadway at the Wings Theater. And at the time of that summer, Bousman was just finishing principal photography on Saw 2 when he caught up with the crew in New York City and caught a performance. And at that moment, Bousman was convinced to film at least a short film based on the opera and have it released. Yeah, this is this is a neat story. I, I yeah. like how this, this, uh, this opera is just basically created to become a film. Because yeah. normally they're not they're not that way. You have to you have to basically shove a shove an opera into oh yeah film yeah format and yeah this I one mean, you know I'm I'm fascinated by this I'm, yeah and all I can think of is how all, all I can think about is cats yes you know how yeah. they how they took cats and just made this godless oh. abomination <laughs> <laughs> which I have just, avoided seeing yeah, I have really oh. avoided it. I honestly Ugh. think that everyone should experience cats at least once. Yeah. It's, it's something. Yeah. It's something. I, I, I swear Ian McKellen looks at the camera at one point and he goes, help me. <laughs> <laughs> Judy Dench just, yeah. Judy Dench just doesn't care. She's just up there. You know, oh I'm man. getting paid. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And you she, know, she, honestly, honestly, Judy Dench looks right at the camera at one point, like she's on the office and delivers <laughs> her last few lines. <laughs> and you can tell every single F she had is gone by this point. She's like, I am Dame Judy effing Dench. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. you've got me in a movie where I'm playing a cat. And I'm sorry, you're having to digitally remove the what now? You know they had, <laughs> yes. you know they had yeah. to digitally remove the cat's um, buttholes. Yep. And yep. I, if they come out with the butthole cut, I'm going to watch it. <laughs> the butthole cut. <laughs> If they can get the Snyder cut made, we can have the butthole cut. Let's see. Cats. Starfish edition. Okay. Got it. Butthole cut. <laughs> you loved cats. <laughs> we didn't. No. You experience. sat through cats. And now you can experience it the way it was always meant to be seen. <laughs> With I butt. see a bad moon rising. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So let's get back to Repo. <laughs> now. Did I just hijack the show? I'm sorry. Oh, that's exactly what I... I love that. I love it. So 2006... So 2005 was when Bousman saw it in New York and went, we're going to get this filmed. 2006 saw the trio filming a short of at least 10 minutes that they could pitch to larger studios. In 2007, the trio presented the short at a small screening in Beverly Hills, and the project was greenlit for release by Twisted Pictures and Lionsgate Entertainment. Although, 
Bousman insists that most of the work on getting the film put together was based on his own work. Here's a quote from him. Basically, it's myself and two other people doing it. We run the website. We print out flyers every night. Every single, every single day, I'm online in chat rooms talking to people about the movie. This isn't Lionsgate doing it. This is us. Here's the deal. There are those who believe that there is no market for this movie. They're completely wrong. There is a huge market for this movie, and we've seen the market. I mean, the, you also have to understand the, the time period that this was mm-hmm. uh, being released in as well, because nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing besides sequels and remakes, were being marketed at all. Right, yeah. So something yeah. new and different, the studios did not like that. They wanted stuff that that had a guaranteed audience. Yes, and and that's that's so funny because, I mean, we could talk about the introductory film of the MCU, 2008, yes. Iron Man, okay? Iron, Iron Man, yes. And I think everybody just went, so we're taking like a second tier superhero and we're going to base our, that's going to be our tentpole movie this summer? Okay. And then everybody will see it and they were absolutely blown away. And then, you know, floodgates are out. But that's actually kind of an, uh, an interesting topic to, I'm, I'm going to sidebar here for just a second. Um, this is a huge thing on Broadway right now where it, it took Hamilton, it took Hades Town, it took Dear Evan Hansen to finally start to allow producers to think, you know what? Maybe we can do something that is not a movie. Or maybe we can do something that people will just appreciate going to because it's something new and different. And we don't have to be afraid of something closing so fast because, yeah. I mean, the thing is, new original works are out there all the time. Yes, most definitely. They're just not getting picked up. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's really, it's stifling. It is very stifling as an artist whenever things like that happen. And here's another thing, um, uh, getting back to this story, it kind of in a way just shows how completely out of touch sometimes producers and investors can be with their potential audience. So here's here's another quote from Darren Lynn Bousman in the same interview. He says, in fact, I'm introducing the film at NYU tonight and every college I've gone to, I say, raise your hand if you've ever heard of Repo. And I would say 90% of the hands go up. Yeah, they're there. It's just, they don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's a weird weird disconnect. And I just don't get it. It is. Yeah. So within just a few years time, Repo had already built the niche audience it may have needed. And thankfully, with the help of Lionsgate and Twisted Pictures, they did get a lot of money to produce the film, but maybe not as much to promote it. And as I said at the beginning of the episode, the film was released on 11 screens nationwide and got pretty poor reviews from your traditional critics upon of course and to this day the film still has a 39 percent on rotten tomatoes (laughs) that's (laughs) oh i i have words about critics but i will set on yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) but again this was for a very niche audience Uh, The online magazine Polygon did a great review on this several years ago, and they did a great job of pinning down the ability for this show to become the cult classic that it has become. And besides being set in a gothic futuristic paradise as an absolute gift to those in the goth culture, I mean, plus it tells a story that throws several middle fingers to air quotes the man. And and besides the extraordinary and ambitious undertaking not to just write a musical but an opera – Polygon credited the cast 
as one of the primary components of this show's ability to endear itself to a newfound fandom. So I'm going to throw out some names here and I'm sure you're going to go, oh, of course, that would bring in all of its own audience on its own. They're going to come see this. And now we're combining all of these different followings and audience types. Okay. So frankly, the cast is extraordinary. And surprisingly enough, they all sing their own parts. It's not dubbed in. Anthony Stewart Head from Buffy oh. the Vampire Slayer. Who is a great singer. Yep. Yes. He plays he, Nathan. He plays Nathan, the Repo Man. Oh, wow. I did not know that. <laughs> I, I know he's a great singer because, you know, we've all watched the Buffy episodes where yep. he's saying and he's he's just like belting it out. But yeah, and, that's, that's neat. It's my, uh, it's my understanding that that's why they chose him. Because of that episode. Because of Buffy. <laughs> because of Buffy. Okay. So there you go. You put that guy in a movie and you go on a Buffy fan page and go, hey, uh, Anthony Stewart Head is in this movie. They're coming. They're coming. The late Paul Sorvino plays oh the goodness. He plays the villainous Roddy Largo. Oh, nice. See, I don't I don't remember mm -hmm. him singing, but oh I'm sure uh, he probably has. I just don't remember it. I, I think he is like a classically trained tenor. <laughs> Does not surprise. He looks like he would be a good singer. I mean, I right. know, he's just, yeah. Singers just have this look and he's got it. So I, yep. I bet and, you. Oh. Yeah. And he's on the 2022 Deadpool too. doggone it. Um, anyway, Alexa Panavega or Alexa Vega to a lot of people, best known for playing Carmen in the Spy oh, Kids yes. movies. Yes. She does a lovely job playing the wayward Shiloh, the little oh, girl with the blood disorder who goes out into this world. Now, how, how old was she in 2008? Oh, God. I was she like a teenager or something like that? Well, she, play, she plays a teenager, but I think she was at least in her early 20s by then. Oh, yeah, because I know I know both those kids are like pushing 40 now. Yeah, yeah. I came and across Daryl Sabara's TikTok the other day. I was like, why does this guy look so familiar? Where have Whoa. I seen him before? <laughs> And then, then it hit me. I was like, it's Judy. <laughs> see? There Judy's old. Yep, exactly. I mean, we we see all those kids from uh, uh, the Sandlot today, and you're <laughs> no. like, oh, no. But one of the best, or maybe worst, casting decisions made was to cast Paris Hilton in the role of Roddy Largo's daughter, Amber Sweet. <laughs> now this was one of the decadent kids right yeah yeah the kids okay. who were like addicted to surgery um okay you know I basically see that they flaunt their dirty laundry in public all the time okay so she's basically playing herself more or less but like okay. a gothified version of herself um see so that just makes me want i i cannot stand paris hilton but i i, oh. I can see how that would work check this out lover or hater Paris actually supplied all of her own costuming for the gig. Huh. And, and it's rumored that she once saved the project when it was facing a $50,000 budget shortfall by making a nightclub appearance. Wow. So she saved the production by just going on. Okay. Wow. I care. She cared about it enough to just go put her name on the line and bring in the proceeds. I was, I, Hey, I you know what? That's, that's pretty awesome. That's laudable. I I yeah. I appreciate that. So yeah, Paris Hilton, yep. I take back 23.7% of the things I've said about you. That may also include some good things, but I'm not going to sort them <laughs> out to check. Now, Bousman actually said that Paris Hilton nailed her vocal audition and was absolutely excited to have her as part of the project because she brought such fame and notoriety. 
And this was kind of like a thing for Bousman's like whole idea of the picture is like it it is for haters or it's for people who have been hated on, you know? So it's like, sh- uh, there's nobody that's been hated on more than Paris Hilton. That is true. Yes. <laughs> and you know, but a lot for, of that is, a lot of that has got to be self-promotion though. You know, <laughs> yes, you know, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. if, if people are talking good about you or people are talking bad about you, they're still yep. talking about they're you. They're talking about you. Yep. What was that? Jack Sparrow said, you're the worst part I've ever heard of. Well, you have, heard, you of have heard of me. <laughs> Now, on top of all of this cast, music lovers, particularly fans of opera or industrial or both, were thrilled to see Ogre from Skinny Puppy in the role of Pavi Largo, one of the despicable children, and opera diva Sarah Brightman in the role of Blind Mag. (laughs) And a lot of critics thought casting Brightman might be a bit of a stretch, and even Bousman was surprised. So here's a quote of his on Sarah Brightman. Sarah Brightman, she's a goth. Every single one of these actors were my first choice except Sarah. Someone threw out Sarah Brightman's name and I laughed, but she read it and loved it and was on a plane two days later from South Africa to LA. She said that she felt more comfortable doing this movie than she does in a lot of other things she's ever done because this is the world she lives in. I can see that. I can see personally connecting with that kind of role. Right. And I've looked her up too. Some of her performances are so dark and they're so dreary that I'm like, okay, that was not actually much of a stretch, but you know, you go to Best Buy or you go to Apple music or something and you look up Sarah, Sarah Brightman and she's just singing, you know, classical arias and stuff. You're like, well, I can see the confusion. I'm I'm getting more and more fascinated with this. Oh yeah. You're going to love it. I mean, this is like, this is like a campfire right now. I just, just, (laughs) and now let me tell you about the goths. Yes. (laughs) I don't know. I had, I had it in my head that Ewan McGregor was in this movie. Is he not? No, Mm -mm. no. Okay. I don't know where I got that idea from. Cause I kept expecting to say Ewan McGregor. Cause I guess Moulin Rouge. No, no. I guess that was Anthony Stewart. Yep. Anthony Stewart had, Now, despite being rather negatively looked at by critics who wanted to complain about the gore, the decision to cast Paris Hilton, who really only appears on the screen for no more than 10 minutes of the 100-minute film. Oh, and by the way, Hilton, she was nominated for a Razzie for Worst Actress with Repo, the Genetic Opera, and two other features in which she appeared in 2008. I think that would have, I think one of them would have been House of Wax, which... uh, No, uh, it might have been. It might have been. I admit, I watched House of Wax. Ooh. And I loved House of Wax. Did you love watching Paris Hilton die in House of Wax? I <laughs> did not, actually, because I kind of felt bad for her, uh, the character at least. But uh, Paris Hilton, to promote the movie, did print up a bunch of T-shirts to give away that says, on June 18th, come watch Paris Hilton die. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> yes. So it's like I said, you know, whether people are talking bad about you or good about you, they're talking about you, and she is a queen of self-promotion. And honestly, I think she's she's smarter than people let on, or at oh least my she's God. smarter than yes. she lets on. Yeah, absolutely. But despite all of this, Repo the Genetic Opera slowly grew a fan base, which is now known as the Repo Army. And as of today's recording, the Repo Army Facebook group has over 80,000 members and shares information and stories about what the cast and crew are doing now, and as well as appearances they make. But one of the more fantastic things 
and more fascinating things that has come from the cult following is the number of staged screenings of Repo the Genetic Opera, which generally occur around Halloween, but pop up all over the country and sometimes in Europe, similar to how the Rocky Horror Picture Show is staged, where the film plays on a screen behind them, costume actors perform the movie as a live shadow cast in front of the film, and ticket buyers also come in costume, sing along with the songs, and shout back lines to interact with the film. I do believe that whenever I lived in Fort Worth, the historic theater that, you know, showed movies like Rocky Horror, but I think that they were doing a, uh, a, repo? a showing of Repo, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it starts getting a much bigger following now that we're getting back to, you know, uh, being in public a little bit more and, and you know, dusting off some of these things that we might have reconnected with during the, the pandemic. So, yeah, I really yes. wouldn't be surprised because, you know, I direct an annual version of Rocky Horror every year, but I hate to say it, that audience is getting up there in years. And and while it's still a very popular thing for youngsters, like in my house last year was filled with almost 300 young people um, as a nationwide thing. It's like, well, we might have to move on to the next thing. And this might be the new thing. I don't know. Well, here's hoping. Yeah. So about the army, Bousman had this to say. People come to a repo show and they can look different and act different without being made fun of or picked on. I was at the airport once and a guy came up to me, pulled up his sleeve, and his arm was covered with repo tattoos. And <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know. I love like that pure love that people have for yeah, things. Yeah. And they love and, it so unconditionally. Right. And and now not only do they love the thing, but they love the people that they meet yes. and the community that grows. And you know, you can set up a thing where it's like, I'm traveling to this city, where am I repo at? You know? And <laughs> And, you know, maybe you get together with people who have seen it and they're pointing out things to you that you've never seen or like, ooh, this is my cosplay that I invented. You want to come see this, you know? Yeah, so that's one of the things that I think really stinks the most about toxicity and fan bases that we touched on earlier is that not <laughs> only do they kind of besmirch the, the, I hate to say product, but the product, you know, whether it be Star Trek, Star Wars or whatever, but it also destroys the fan base. It's just like a, it's a, it's a virus that just destroys everything and turns everyone against each other. And I just, I will never understand why that is done or even tolerated. Well, it's interesting we've gotten to this point, Jason, because, um, you know, we're talking about the sense of community around a beloved piece. And I just have to say that I'm simultaneously surprised and not surprised at what happened when that community felt that their beloved film faced a threat. <laughs> I'm listening. Okay. On March 29th, 2010, Universal Pictures released a slick sci-fi action film called Repo Men, starring Jude Law, Oscar winner Forrest Whitaker, and Liev Schreiber. Maybe that's why I was thinking Ewan McGregor, because I always thought Ewan McGregor and Jude Law kind of look alike. Okay, okay. 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 The plot should sound very similar. In fact, a Huffington Post submission put it this way. Name the movie with the following plot. In a dystopian future, organ transplants have become a commodity and the giant corporation that sells them sends out repo men to take back hearts, kidneys, and other innards from customers who aren't paying their bills. That sounds incredibly familiar. <laughs> now, whenever I said I'd heard of uh, Repo the Genetic Opera, I'm wondering uh -huh. if maybe it's, this is the movie that yep, I've heard of. Because yep. now okay. I'm completely, 
I'm completely confused, which is pretty much my baseline anyway. (laughs) Based on the 2009 novel, The Repossession Mambo by author Eric Garcia, Repo Men was originally released nationwide on hundreds of screens, released the same weekend as the first Diary of a Wimpy Kid movie and the rom-com The Bounty Hunter featuring Jennifer Aniston and Gerard Butler. Parade Magazine listed Repo Men as one of the biggest flops so far in 2010 in July of 2010. It currently has a rating of 22% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Goodness, well. So the thing is, it is a, a a movie that's based in a similar world where you have the same kind of conceptual set of circumstances, but it's not the same story at all. And it doesn't right. even it doesn't even resemble the same story at all. Right. This is this is like the 13th floor versus the Matrix, where it's the right. same yep. general idea, but yep. done completely different. Yeah. One good, one not. Yeah. And Andra, the woman who walks beside me, when I told her I was going to start researching this episode, she said, oh, I found an article the other day and she couldn't find it again. But it was like uh, a certain number of movies, like 15 movies that were released and another movie that exact the exact same movie came out the same year. So, oh, yes. uh, so I was like, oh, Deep deep Impact and Armageddon. And Ants and like, a Bug's Life. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Same year. So uh, Repo Man has a low rating on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. But that might not have been totally a product of the film's actual quality. <laughs> Seeing way too many similarities to ignore, the Repo Army was absolutely infuriated. They did not review bomb this movie, did they? What they felt they saw was exactly (laughs) the theme they say in Repo the Genetic Opera. A big corporation was exploiting their product and replacing it with something much more processed and commercialized. I mean, any of us can feel that way when Hollywood takes a product that we love and bastardizes it for a major Hollywood release, right? Absolutely. You go back to my episode 31 about vampire musicals. I, I talk about Let the Right One In. Are you familiar with that one? I, I am, yes. I freaking love that movie. Both versions, I think, are just great. And I did not see the uh, Americanized one with uh, Chloe Grace Moritz. But, I mean, there was a part in me where I went, but we already have this movie. And it's really beautiful. Why are we making it again? So it's American with a bigger budget and we can speak English without subtitles. I mean, that's what it felt like in a way. Yeah, well, you know, Americans hate subtitles and there's money to be made. Oh, God. I mean, but I will say, even though it's not as good as the original, it's still a good movie. Yeah, yeah. Still a great movie. I mean, I'm I'm still kind of expecting Hollywood to announce that uh, they're going to release an American version of Parasite, which won Best Picture. But it, it was Korean. We didn't understand it. It could possibly happen. I don't yeah. know. You know. I still haven't seen Parasite. I need to do something about that, too. Oh, my God. That's I know. One. I know. Every you time have I say a list. that, I, just, I do. I have a list. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. The Repo Army did exactly what you asked them not to do. They organized and mobilized online to discredit Repo Men. <laughs> Many just took to their own social media to lambast what they felt was blatant plagiarism. Many of the army took to their blogs and wrote entry upon entry upon entry, and much of the online furor was directed towards Repo Men author and screenwriter Eric Garcia, whose listings on Amazon suddenly began to see thousands of negative reviews from Repo Army for all of his books, not just the Repossession Mambo. Oh, goodness. That's... <laughs> I shouldn't be I shouldn't be smiling at that but at the same time that's just 
that's hilarious. <laughs> I know. You just, oh, God. Uh, you know what? I can think of some more words and I'm going to set up another account on Amazon to go in and give it another <laughs> bad review. I'm just going to write the word fart over and over and over again. <laughs> Maybe people will smell it. Like I said before, though, the trouble with this is that it couldn't be further from the truth. First off, if you sit down and watch the two films back to back like I did, the only real similarity is that they seem to have the same basic concept and world in which they live, but it doesn't even look the same. Right. Like Repo the Genetic Opera is very dark and gothic, and this is how the people dress. Uh, Repo Men is very slick and futuristic and and kind of like it feels like you're in a big uh, technologically advanced city. So it's they're they're incredibly different. I mean, the, the differences are starkly apparent from the onset of each film. So do you think it was just the title that was making everybody upset? Uh, maybe if they'd titled it something else, it would have uh, kind of gone under their radar? Uh, yes and no. First of all, Repo, they all went, oh yeah. my God, a sequel. Because it's it was actually said by the Repo Genetic Opera creators that the opera was actually the middle chapter in what they planned to be a trilogy. <laughs> okay, George Lucas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, you started with number four? <laughs> but I think the fans heard that and they saw the synopsis and they went, oh, wait a minute. And, you know, I mean, to set something up in a new world, you have to world build pretty significantly and well, you know. So to kind of answer your question there a little bit, one of my sources is the HuffPost op-ed that I mentioned earlier. And it suggests that the Repo Army made a knee-jerk reaction to a film they'd never seen and probably never would see because it's such a slick, over-commercialized Hollywood thing. It was just, you know, this is what Universal is releasing in March because they have a full schedule and they have to release something. So this is the one that they greenlit. I disagree with them or with that, uh, with that opinion. I think there was enough attention paid from the Repo Army that they had to know what they were talking about. There was one blog that was referenced several times in my research and I can never find it, but it, it supposedly listed something like, 25 stark similarities in Repo the Genetic Opera and Repo Men. So you could see that it was an obvious ripoff. Yes, those are always so much fun. You know, oh, right, yeah. Both yeah. were uh, shot with cameras. Both yeah. were projected on screen. <laughs> These people, their first name started with the letter G. And, yes, know. yes. <laughs> but here's one that I did notice that I could see would be something for like a serious cult following fan base to go, see, proves my point. In Repo the Genetic Opera, the painkiller that I talked about that could be harvested from the bodies of the dead that was yes. more easily sold on the black market is a drug known as Zydrate, or just simply Z, comes in the form of a glowing blue liquid. In Repo Men, one of the characters is addicted to a highly addictive painkiller, simply called Q, <laughs> and comes in the form of a glowing red powder. That is suspect. Yeah, right. You're like, oh, yeah. okay. So hmm. two years ago, we had a movie with a drug called Z, one of the least used letters of the alphabet. And then two years later, we have this other thing about organ harvesting mercenaries. And there is a drug in the world called Q and they both glow, but they're different colors. 
Well, yeah, that's that's all you need is just different <laughs> colors. This is kind of reminding me of the the Star Wars ripoffs of like the early '80s, like Battle Beyond the Stars and everything. Oh, right. Like, oh, yes. those are no. This isn't Star Wars. It's completely different. Here's our bad guy decked out in black armor, but his eyes are red. Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Oh my god. So obviously, <laughs> to the Repo Army, all of this is obviously stolen despite that they're two completely different genres and stories and both result in completely different endings. So to the best of my knowledge and kind of to the defense of the writers of both, both worlds, here's how the timeline all went down. Eric Garcia of Repo Men first published a 13 page short story in 1997 that featured the idea of an organ harvest trade. Eric Garcia lives in LA. Darren Smith and Terrence Zadunich first met in acting classes in L.A. in the late 90s, conceived Repo the Genetic Opera in the early 2000s, and began performing it live on stage throughout the L.A. area. So you have these two universes that were released major from L.A. in the same place, developing something at the same time, but completely independent of each other. My guess is that all three men were in the creative arts and observed the world through a similar perspective. Quite possible, yes. And both had a similar idea of how the world could turn out or how they could tell something of an allegorical tale using what they saw of the world in front of them. I mean, it makes sense. It, yeah. it does. And, I mean, you know, it's, it's not the first time that I've ever heard the concept of uh, repossessing organs. Yeah. I mean, yeah. right. We were, we were, we were talking about toxicity in star trek earlier in 2004 there was an episode of star trek enterprise actually several episodes where the aliens would get these uh, surgical implants like improved eyes or improved lungs and if they didn't do like they were supposed to do the the main guy would take them away and just say oh, yep. i'm gonna take your eyes now yep so i mean yep. it's 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 a novel idea but it's not exactly new no repo army don't come at me i'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you're also saying that happened in 2004. Yes. That could be another instance where some writer for Star Trek had gone to a club or a cabaret in LA and seen them perform the thing and then went, that's a neat idea and wrote it, it down possible. and let yeah. and let it flourish. But it wasn't necessarily stealing. He just no, went, that's cool. No, that's cool. There are no new ideas. There's just yeah. recycled ideas. Yes, I mean, you exactly. Can, you can look at Shakespeare and Chaucer and you can see, oh yeah, that's oh, just God. like these movies that have been yep. released in the last 20 years. Yep, and I'm, I'm going to come back to that at some point, some, some Shakespeare because... Uh, well, here, I'll just say it now. Hamlet was stolen. Yes. I mean, yes, like was. three years prior, Shakespeare had seen a play called Hamlet written by one of his contemporaries. and went, that's a neat yeah. story. I'll write that. And, yeah. and and it happened all the time. It happened Dude all the thief. time. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. So. Absolutely. It's very possible that their lines crossed at some point without actually meeting. I mean, perhaps Smith or Zadunich read Garcia's short story, didn't realize that they were coming up with an idea very similar. It's also possible that Garcia happened to see their show in the very earliest of developmental stages, even though he'd already published his short story about a similar topic. And he actually worked on writing that novel for the next 10 years. I maintain the innocence of all parties for several reasons. First of all, they all swear to it. I mean, whenever all involved parties are saying, no, nah, it's, it's, it wasn't, you know, you got to take them at their word. Right. Exactly. I mean, I mean, even if they, if, if they had done it, but they still said, no, we're totally innocent. On the other hand, if they had come out and said, yeah, I stole the idea from them. 
their career is over in yeah, today's exactly. world. I exactly. mean, they, they can't do that. So from everything I've seen that they've said, no party intentionally stole the ideas from anyone else. They came up with them at the same time, completely irrespective of each other. Yeah, I mean, I, I buy it. I do. Yeah. Plus, they're artists, and good mm-hmm. artists will support each other. Knowing that the Repo Army would take umbrage with Repo Men, director Darren Lynn Bousman tweeted this before the opening of Repo Men. I consider myself lucky to have been to have such a rabid fan base as the Repo Army. I hope and urge all of them to support Repo Men as it helps bring awareness to our movie as well. In the end, we're all artists here in love with our art. Bashing Repo Men is exactly the opposite thing that I want fans to do. Repo, the genetic opera, is about acceptance, not alienation. That is outstanding. I, Isn't that great? I respect that. That is so good. I right? love it. Right. And, you know, even though like you might have people still go to that show and go, well, I like Repo, the genetic opera better. Okay. You at least went and supported it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know? I, I love the camaraderie right there, you know, just yeah. saying, going out and support them. This is great. You know, it helps us. It helps you, helps them. Absolutely. I mean, start I mean, holding hands and start singing. We are the world. I mean, I just, <laughs> I love it. I love that kind of uh, sentiment. Right. Right. Now, evidently the creative team behind repo Bousman Smith and Sadunich met with Eric Garcia, author and screenwriter of repo men at a diner in Hollywood to discuss the whole thing. And just like the room where it happened in Hamilton, we'll never know what was really said at that meeting. What came of it, though, was a united front that both projects were developed completely independently of one another. And that while they were happy for the attention both films had received because of the online squabble, they remained disappointed that it had to happen that way. From the HuffPost op-ed I referenced, the Repo Army, which largely consists of people who were the victim of bullies, started to become bullies themselves. Oh, you live long enough and you see yourself become the villain. Ah, and that is a story of Repo versus Repo. I, it's so funny because like I said, I think whenever you were talking about Repo the Genetic Opera, I was thinking of Repo Men. And uh-huh. now I don't know what to believe anymore. Right. because My memory is so faulty, but I, now I, I really want to sit down and watch both of these films now. And I, I hope that's what the creators that, well, that's what the creators wanted to begin with. So, you know, here we are 12 years later, no, 14 years later and 14 years later, we're, we're, we're doing it. So we're still talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, Chelsea, thank you again for an amazing topic. This has led to just a fascinating uh, floodgate for a lot of people. I think, I mean, it was, it was one of those little riots that kind of was a blip and then blipped out, you know, I mean, repo men did not, do well no no it, it apparently it didn't if i'm getting it mixed up with another movie and thinking <laughs> that you know ewan mcgregor was in it but i mean you know it was fun like i was i was telling a friend about it the other day and he goes yeah i actually kind of liked repo men but i've never seen repo the genetic opera now it's something he's considering again it is unfortunate that it had to happen that way but here's the result both movies got more attention <laughs> yes yeah and <laughs> I just I I just hate seeing because you know that uh, from what you've told me that uh, the genetic opera was a true passion project. I, I don't know that much about Repo Men oh, uh, in man. that regard, but you know the genetic opera definite passion project. They worked on it for years, and it it hurts that they did not get the audience right out of the box that right. they 
that they deserved and right. they you mm-hmm. do deserve it whenever you you champion a project like that I yeah mean, yeah even if the project is not that great you know tommy what's i'm looking at you at <laughs> least at least he's got the he's uh, he's got the audience because i think if you do that kind of work you deserve some recognition for it whether right. it is the infamous recognition of tommy Wiseau or the the um you know the cult classic following of the genetic opera right here so right. i guess i guess even though it's kind of a a bad beginning you get a happy ending and yeah that's hollywood yeah. right there that is definitely a hollywood ending well that's one of those like cinderella stories uh, that i like i mean on the other side of that coin repo men you know when you think about like a huge hollywood production that had a pretty significant budget like 25 million or something like that mm-hmm. and and i think it made it back for the most part uh but it was just another movie that the studio had to release to meet their budget and they picked a project that they were like you know i bet we could go even on this project and make a little bit more I mean, it wasn't anything that the studio was like, we are going to sell, sell, sell. This is a totally new franchise. Maybe it'll pick up a following. Maybe it won't. But we know at least we'll we'll break even on it. But thinking about this whole story, there was one quote that I was trying to find and I never could. Somebody said it to me years ago and I wanted to say they referenced Sammy Davis Jr. as the person who said it. And it went, it went along the lines of this. If you're an artist and you're not stealing, then you're not an artist. That sounds like something Sammy Davis would say. (laughs) (laughs) Basically any any singer in Las Vegas, you know, was was stealing from the generation before them, you know, Mm -hmm. and they Mm -hmm. all started out. They all started out as Harlem songs being sung by black artists taken by, you know, no, no offense to Sammy Davis Jr. Obviously, I'm just saying that, you know, most of the songs of the 50s and 60s got their start with black singers who ended yep. up losing their their music to white singers. And, oh, yeah. you know, so yeah, I'm sure he saw it happen. I'm sure it probably happened to him a couple of times before he became well, successful. And probably also himself went, you know, I'm going to have to change something in myself to mm-hmm. be acceptable by this audience at this time. You know, so he developed his personality, which uh, I mean, not to sound terrible about it, but white audiences were like, I accept that. Yes. And well, that's what it was. You had yeah. to be acceptable to a white audience. Yep. Yeah. You know, he he had he had, you know, ring a ding ding, baby. You know, he had the yeah. the the one eye and you know the 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 lop the, eye, the, the smirk and the, and the, yeah, the, the cigar smirk and everything. And he he hung out with a rat pack and you know, he yeah. was he was one of the boys. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. But I'm sure when he set out and went, I want to be a performer, that was not the type of performer he wanted to be. No, I'm you know? sure it wasn't. Unfortunately, I mean, you kind of have to. Oh, what's the word? You kind of have to betray your uh, your own image of yourself sometimes to be accepted, and that's pretty much for everybody who's ever tried to be a performer. Or like Paris Hilton, you completely capitalize on it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you, be, you become that oh. decadent child that everybody thinks you are, and you make the money. All of it. All of it. Absolutely. Oh. Well, there we go, Jason. That was, uh, I hope you get a chance to see Repo the Genetic Opera. I I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I can oh, see absolutely. the cult following behind it. There's absolutely. So- I'm going to see it just as soon as I can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, any final thoughts on that? Uh, it's, it's, I'm sure you could probably explain the plot for another 45 minutes and still <laughs> get through half of it. But, but sure, sure. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm going to go see if I can't find it on streaming here in just a little bit and just kind of lose myself in it. I think right now it's on Pluto. If you have Pluto, oh, it's, it's there. free. Yes. <laughs> All right. I love Pluto TV. And Repo Men is on Freebie. So you can see that with ads. So if you want to do a double feature. I've never heard of Freebie, but I'll go check it out. There you go. All right. Well, uh, Jason, there we go. Another episode of Euripides Humanities. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a delight to have you on the show. Well, uh, it is it is my absolute pleasure to be here. And 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 fascinating conversation. And I could I could talk about this forever, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately, we do have to end. And so I'm going to go ahead and sign off for Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming. I'll get another episode out to you in another two weeks, and I will see you at intermission. <laughs>